Hi everyone, we're super excited for today's episode, but before we get to that, a few quick announcements. Um, We're currently having a summer sale on our online vegan supplement dispensary. So everything is 20% off until July 8th, so for the next two weeks. If you want to place an order, just go to synergynutrition.ca, go to the shop page, you'll see vegan supplements as one of the options, and then the 20% off sale is automatically applied at checkout. Um, So you don't have to enter a coupon code or anything. It's already done for you. Um, If you have questions about any products that you see in the store online, um, feel free to send me an email or a DM on Instagram. Um, And then the other announcement is I recently teamed up with Cove Ocean, which is a local seaweed company in Vancouver Island, on Vancouver Island, Um, and they have this really great product called Sea Spice, which is like a blend of their seaweeds with, um, I think, garlic and sesame seeds and some other spices in there, and it comes in a little shaker bottle, so it's super easy to incorporate into your meals, so you can like shake it on top of, you know, It tastes good on really anything, Um, but add it to soups, like put it into any recipe that you're making. Um, The recipe that I created using sea spice is a tomato tuna poke bowl recipe. So if you go to Cove Ocean, um, I believe it's on their uh, blog page or like their latest news page, Um, but I will link to that in the show notes today. All right, so those were the two quick announcements. We're going to get into the episode now, which is with the founder of uh, the Food Empowerment Project. So we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Vegan Boss Radio, where we will be talking about all things related to business, health, and lifestyle. We connect with passionate vegans from around the world so they can share their stories, challenges, and what it's like to navigate being vegan in a non-vegan world. Hi everyone, welcome to Vegan Boss Radio. Today my guest is Lauren Ornelis. She is Food Empowerment Project's founder and president. Lauren has been active in the animal rights movement for more than 30 years. She is the former executive director of Viva USA, a national nonprofit vegan advocacy organization that Viva UK asked her to start in 1999. While Lauren was the director of Viva USA, she investigated factory farms and ran consumer campaigns. In cooperation with activists across the country, she persuaded Trader Joe's to stop selling all duck meat and achieved corporate changes within Whole Foods Market, Pier 1 Imports, and others. And she helped halt the construction of an industrial dairy operation in California. Lauren was also the spark that got the founder of Whole Whole Foods Market to become a vegan In addition, she served as campaign director with the Silicon Valley Toxic Coalition for six years. Um, And if you know anything about, like, if you've listened to previous podcasts with me and Megan or have followed um, my Instagram stories or anything like that, we often talk about Food Empowerment Project just because we are so inspired by everything you are doing, Lauren. I'm so excited to chat with you today and learn like so much more about how it all got started. I mean, you've been doing this for over 30 years, so I'm really excited to hear all of this. And also um, just your vegan story, like your personal vegan story, how you got into it. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. And it really means a lot that you support our work. So thank you very, very much for, you know, amplifying the work that we do. Thank you so much. Of course. <laughs> um So when you went vegan around 30 years ago? So I actually went vegetarian when I was in elementary school, actually pre-elementary school. Um, I grew up in Texas and my family's been in Texas since before it was Texas. And basically, you know, my mom raised my sisters and I by herself. And so we would be taken or I would be taken to different places for people to take care of me. And I think the separation from my mom and my sisters really helped me have a lot of empathy with 
cows that I saw in the fields. And I don't, I don't mean it consciously, like at that time, as much as it is when I look back on it now, like I just remember my heart hurting um, at the thought of, you know, I would see them and I'd be like, it'd be so horrible if the mom didn't come back or the baby didn't come back and how sad that would be. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I went vegetarian, not really knowing what it was in elementary school um, during uh, in line for the cafeteria. One time the lunch lady was like, do you want meat on your enchiladas? And I was like, I was like, no. And she was like, oh, are you vegetarian? And I was like, I'm too young to be taking care of dogs and cats. No, like thinking she was being sarcastic because I had no concept of vegetarian. I mean, Texas in the seventies, it wasn't really, you know, that common. And so I didn't know what it meant, but eventually, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I had to go back to eating animals and it was very hard. Um, I remember getting the bags of food and looking through them and being like, just, just having like eat it like a, chicken patty something, you know, and it was just like that. I didn't want to, but I was like, I'm hungry. You know, like I just got home from school. I'm really hungry. And what else am I going to eat? And so, um, but by the time I was 16, I pretty much had decided, you know, I'm going to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day. I'm not going to eat another animal again. So by 86, I went vegetarian. And by 87, I, um, learned about animal rights. And, um, so that was my first introduction to veganism. I'd never heard of it before. Um, and so I went vegan in 1988, um, and started an animal rights group at my high school. And just, you know, I remember pretty much telling my sisters, like, you all can have any of my belts or my shoes, you know, just kind of like not doing any of this anymore. So yeah, that was, that's my vegan story. Wow. How did you hear about animal rights in like 87? (laughs) This is a really funny story. So basically, um, I had I was taking an ecology class in high school. Mm-hmm. And again, this is Texas. And the teacher did a whole slideshow, again, showing my age, a whole slideshow on what was called wildlife management. And everything in there was about hunting. And it was why you had to kill the animals. Oh, and I just kept on raising my hand like this just can't be right. And so the teacher was like, why don't you talk to somebody who cares? And I was like, I don't know anybody who cares. And so then ironically, he brought me an article from the paper about an anti-fur protest. And so I can, and that group was based in San Antonio where I'm from. And yeah, uh, I joined their group. And then when I became vegan, um, and really, because I started an animal rights group at my high school, and um, the teacher, I would like leave him notes saying like, "Stop teaching necrology. Stop, start teaching biology, the study of life." And then, like, I still have this. He wrote like a note on the bottom about, "I know where I'm going to be in the afterlife. Where will you be?" and stuff like that. So, even though he's the one who like really ironically got me on my path, we did not like each other at all. So, wow, that is so interesting. Um, <laughs> I went uh, vegetarian at a very young age too, and it was in 1992. And I, I like you, I didn't really have a concept of what it was and especially had never heard of being vegan. Like that was yeah. not around like where I was in um, Canada and British Columbia. Um, so yeah, that's, wow. I just, I can't imagine like going through all this and like being a pioneer, like in like the early, early days of everything. And then seeing a random like anti-fur protest and then <laughs> starting a, an animal rights group. That's amazing. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know what it's like. I mean, you just, you don't even have to know something called like factory farming or anything about animals being mutilated. You just know that they're dying Yeah, and you, you know, and So I think that's really impressive of you as well to learn more and, you know, for, you know, having the strength to stick with it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's not always easy, especially when we like don't have a lot of people in our communities to support us. Exactly. Um, So food empowerment project, I'd love if you can kind of talk about what the organization is um, and how you started it. Sure. Well, Food Empowerment Project is a vegan food justice organization. And basically, we work to help connect the issues um, of oppression and exploitation, as well as help create tools to not support those 
within the food industry. So um, being uh, vegan mm-hmm. and seeing veganism as one of these core issues, veganism is very much, I would say to some regards, central to what we do, that it really helps, it really helps people see how everything is connected in my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so we promote veganism for the animals. Um, we create, like we've done protesting and things like that um, in front of slaughterhouses, in front of where cows are raised for milk. Um, But we also create websites, um, one of which is vegan Mexican food as a proud Hicanics, which is what I am of Mexican descent. Um, I wanted to create a website that kind of like highlighted our culture and our foods Mm -hmm. in a way to share with other people who weren't vegan to see how our foods, some of which are very inherently vegan um, and to share it with them and also to show other people how delicious our food is um, and, and vegan. Um, So we created vegan Mexican food and it's in English and in Spanish. And then we created a recipe booklet. If any of your listeners are interested in these booklets, just mention this podcast. We'll send you one for free. Um, And then, you know, one of my colleagues is Filipina. And I said the same thing to her, like, why don't we do this with your culture and let's celebrate it? So that's where vegan Filipino food came from. And that's in English and Tagalog. And that also is in booklet form. And our first um, intern who just left our board after many, many years, um, she's Lao. And um, so we decided to do one um, in honor of her culture and her people. And so we have veganlaofood.com, which is in English and Lao. And we're making that into a booklet this year. Um, But really, you know, kind of showing ourselves and others a way to celebrate our culture that you don't have to lose anything about your culture and our identity Um, when you care about animals and when we don't want to consume them and be part of a system that seeks to exploit and oppress them. Um, We also have a new effort we're doing called Fight for the Ocean, which we're really trying to get people to see. It's kind of like two parts. One is trying to get people who, when they see animals caught in nets like whales or sea turtles and who are rightly outraged by what they're seeing, Mm-hmm. Um, understand that those nets are in the ocean because of the desire to consume sea creatures. And that the best way to make sure that that doesn't happen to the animals that they love is to stop eating animals from the oceans. Um, and then also on the flip side a little bit is reminding vegans that although that we are doing all that we can by not consuming animal products, we have to do more. That the ocean mm-hmm. is in such a dire situation right now that it. You know, we coordinate on August 30th every year. Um, We'll be doing it again this year. Um, Took a break because of COVID. Um, But to have people go and do ocean cleanups, um, to do that extra bit for the ocean to protect her and all the sea creatures that live there. So that was a lot. That's our vegan component. (laughs) And and then we also advocate for the rights of farm workers who pick our food. So we kind of want to say, look, a lot of us went vegan because we didn't want to contribute to the suffering of non-human animals. Mm -hmm. But we can't ignore the suffering that's at the hand of the farm workers who do pick our food and pick everybody's food unless you Mm -hmm. grow all of your own. Um, But so to make sure that we do things for farm workers, so we support boycotts that they call, we work on legislative changes and um, different changes that they want. We also do a school supply drive every year for the children of farm workers um, where we give out school supplies to them to help them have a, a better chance at a good education and to help their families. Um, then another part of our work is trying to get people not to buy chocolate sourced from where slavery and child labor are the most prevalent. We have free apps that people can download and we have a list on our website and um, that's updated every month. And to be on the list, a company has to make a vegan chocolate. And then last but definitely not least is our work on lack of access to healthy foods um, in black and brown communities. And we know it impacts indigenous communities as well, but currently we primarily worked in black and brown communities. So we work on stopping food apartheid. And so all of these issues are food justice issues. And we have different ways that we work on each one of them, gearing it to the audience and then gearing how we work on it. So, um, and I know you asked about starting the organization. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So basically, you know, I was, um, I had run Viva USA and had realized that I found certain things very difficult in being an executive director, fundraising being the most difficult for me, um, probably some of which comes from growing up without money. Money's a very difficult conversation or thing to talk about. 
And um, I had decided to stop doing that organization. And I spoke at the World Social Forum in Caracas, Venezuela, um, about animal, you know, animal agriculture, basically, how it impacts workers, the environment, the animals, and how it's all connected. Mm -hmm. And when I was there, I was around activists who looked like me, activists who cared about immigration issues, cared about worker issues, cared about the environment. And I was overwhelmed and just like inspired, I guess, Mm -hmm. to create something because after my talk, everybody is like, well, who cares about this stuff? Who can we work with on this? And I was like, "Uh, right now my group only does farmed animal stuff, you know? Um, And I had already been receiving a lot of pushback in the animal rights movement when I would talk about other issues. So I would talk about what was happening with chocolate and people would say, you're hurting the animals because you should only be talking about the animals. Um, talking about farm workers, same thing. So I kind of, you know, dipped my toe a little bit in the animal movement still. And then I kind of went in another direction, kind of working with an environmental justice organization, um, which I started working, Silicon Valley Toxics mm-hmm. Coalition in 2007, which is also the year I started Food Empowerment Project. Okay. And my goal was to start Food Empowerment Project and use my salary to pay people to do the work. Um, but over time, um, we grew, you know, there was more of a demand. And so I basically did food empowerment project as a volunteer from 2007 until August of 2013, when one of our donors agreed to give me a thousand dollars a month. Um, my husband, Mark Hawthorne and I moved to a not great place. Um, so we could survive off just me making a thousand dollars a month. And that's how I got food empowerment project off the ground. Wow. And how big is your organization now? Like how many people are involved? We have, let's see, we have myself and Megan in California. Okay. We have um, Ethan working in Maryland. We have Nati who works in New York. She's our most recent hire. And Amanda who works in Seattle. So I guess that's about five or six of us. I'm so bad at numbers. (laughs) Um, But yes, so we're still small. Um, it's our 15 year anniversary. Um, and so, you know, I, I have a lot of ideas, so we're still hoping to grow a lot more, but, um, we've got a really great group. That's amazing. You know, with everything that you're involved with and doing, I would have guessed like 50 people, 60 people. (laughs) I wish, and I'm sure that my colleagues wish that too, because I'm like, there's so much to do. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so you touched on this a little bit already, but uh, yeah, I mean, I see it too, like within the vegan community, um, there sometimes isn't a lot of discussion around other social justice issues. And then when people bring it up who are vegan, they're saying that they're taking away, um, from the animals basically. So do you feel like these past few years that has been like changing a little bit and improving or do you still see the same kind of mentality it's a great question um i think a bit of a mixture one is because i think that for those of us well i'll speak for myself as a brown woman Mm -hmm. you know issues like race have often also been considered that way like it's somehow a quote-unquote distraction when you're talking about who we are as people and how you can see that as a distraction is definitely a foreign perspective. Um, so I think that that because that issue got more, you know, with the George Floyd mm-hmm. murder and everything, I think there was a lot more exposure and you saw that come out again. You saw vegans being like, you know, we, from our organization, you know, we've had it since our existence because we've always talked about issues impacting black and brown people. Um, so we've had that pushback always. Mm. Um, but you saw it a little bit more. People kind of proud of themselves for not liking people. But I think that the flip side of that is that the younger generations are not like that. They get how this is all connected. They don't need mm. any explanation. They're, they're like, this is all bad. What do we do to stop all the bad stuff? You know, and that they get Food Empowerment Project, which is beautiful. Um, But that I feel like that's the interesting predicament. And I will say that I I would guess that some of it is probably because of the Trump administration Mm -hmm. that really made racists feel emboldened um, and proud, literally proud of being white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is unfortunately some people in the animal rights and vegan movement as well. 
Yeah, yeah, we really have seen it, I think, come out in the last few years. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think there is um, this misconception that like vegan is means cruelty free. But when you factor in farm workers' rights, food apartheid, um, the child like slavery in the chocolate industry, we can't really say that. And uh, chocolate is a perfect example, um, which is why I think your app is so valuable. So just for everyone that's not aware, it's in, like an app you can download. You can also go to your website, right, and mm -hmm. check all the lists. And I'm just wondering, um, like, is it difficult to verify the, the chocolate suppliers? And, how, like, do you get, like, how many... I guess, chocolate brands are contacting you to be added to your list? It's really remarkable how many companies want to be added to our list. Because okay. I always think of it, because I know like we're like, there's what, five of us or something, you know, mm -hmm. I'm like, you're so tiny, but they do want to be added to our list, which I think is brilliant. And even more exciting is the companies who maybe we wouldn't recommend who then want to change suppliers. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So it's not, I mean, the way that we verify it is that there are certain countries um, in Western Africa and Brazil, mm -hmm. um, again, <laughs> sometimes I listen to how I say things. I'm like, okay, I know Brazil is just one country, but anyway, Western Africa, a few <laughs> countries, and then Brazil yeah. is the other country. Um, but basically, um, there's uh, child labor and slavery is incredibly prevalent. And every single type of certification that has existed in those places have been found to be, they don't work. Okay. Even, even, even companies that are doing things that they think are different, they're still finding these problems. And I think it's because they're not doing anything extraordinarily different, like giving the people who are growing and harvesting it all control. Mm -hmm. It's still the West somehow controlling. Okay. Um, so basically, we don't recommend chocolate sourcing from those areas. And you'll be surprised. I mean, the chocolate companies are very honest about where they're supplying from. And I, I think that they know because if they're lying to us, that's mm -hmm. our credibility on the line. Right. If they don't tell us the truth, then then especially with vegans, then, then mm -hmm. is their chocolate even vegan? Yeah. You know, so, you know, I think that, you know, to their credit, most of them, are very honest. There are some companies though that I honestly think are some of the worst that they don't even bother responding to us mm. or they say that um, it's proprietary information. And again, we're not even, you know, the ludicrousy of it is that we're not asking for the city or the state. We're literally asking for the country. Yeah. So for them to ask like it's proprietary and therefore they can't tell us is just, it just shows how little they care about the problems of child labor and slavery. Wow. Um, so what are the chocolate growing countries that have better like laws and practices? Well, you know, again, our list is basically based yeah. on slavery and, and child labor. So okay. it's hard for us to say like, oh, they treat their employees great. We're kind of mm -hmm. just saying the worst of the worst yeah. is not happening in these places from any documentation that's been found. And if we find it, then they won't be on our list, you okay. know, but it's primarily chocolate is only grown in certain places. So cacao actually, yeah. which is what chocolate is made from is only mm -hmm. grown in certain places. So Latin America, except for Brazil, okay. um, you know, places like that, Indonesia. Um, but there's another country, I mean, Hawaii, mm -hmm. um, they have cacao as well. So I guess it's a certain, um, you know, around the equator, I guess yeah. that chocolate can be grown. So those countries just, not Western yeah. Africa and Brazil, and Brazil, unfortunately. Okay. Interesting. But I mean, we would recommend them, you know, like if they were the owners, if they owned their product, if they made the decisions, mm -hmm. but no company yet, um, except for one, has been willing to do that. And that company doesn't even supply from Western Africa right now. They're just trying to help those workers uh, that get it off the ground still. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah, it's just so helpful because like for the individual consumer to like call up each brand of vegan chocolate that they're interested in and like find out what like what countries it's coming from. That's a lot of work. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we write them, we give them, you know, usually about a month and a half after we mm -hmm. contact them. 
Um, if they're like, you know, we will give them time to change, you know, they won't go on our list if they're going to change suppliers or things like that either. Okay. Um, but yeah, we created the list because of people telling us they wanted something like that. Because mm-hmm. again, it was like, oh, I'm just talking about this issue. And people are like, okay, what chocolate can I buy? And I'm like, uh, we'll work on that. And mm-hmm. then they're like, do you have something I can use in the store? We'll work on that. You know, so it's like you just, the organization, a lot has been built off of people telling yeah. us what they need. So, okay. Um, do you think there's similar issues with like coffee growing? There's definitely similar issues with coffee. I mean, I think that what we do, we do have information on coffee on our website as well. Um, and a small list of companies that we recommend, and that's not because they're the only ones we recommend. It's just that we're so tiny. We don't have the capacity to do a full list like we do for chocolate, but, um, yeah, you know, unfortunately Mm -hmm. fair trade hasn't been great for the coffee growers, even though that's, uh, one of the reasons why it was created. And okay. so those farmers, those growers are still not getting paid what they should be for one right. thing. Um, this kind of like leads into my next question, which has to do with statements around um, like vegans, like the demand by vegans for quinoa, avocados, like different crops like that from um different like countries around the world has caused an increase in price. And now like those farmers can't even like, and the, like the local people in those communities can't afford it, but I'm not really sure that's happening. So I'm wondering if you have any insight. Yeah. I mean, I know a little bit about quinoa okay, and primarily that, yeah, like you don't know how much is true because I know that Bolivia Mm-hmm. is one of the countries where they grow a lot of it. And I know also at the time when this started, the U.S. didn't like the president who was in power there. So anything that could have potentially helped the income of that country may not have been welcomed. Okay. So I just feel like everything with food, you know, ends up being so political, you know, that, that um, but I don't know. My understanding is that the quinoa growers pretty much have always kept a small part of it for themselves to feed themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I don't know how true any of yeah. that is. We're actually going to be, this year we will be releasing a page about avocados on our website. So okay. we'll know more about that at yeah. some point. But, yeah. um, you know, and again, I really appreciate, you know, the talking about that just because it's vegan doesn't mean it's cruelty-free because mm-hmm. I think that the, the intent is there, right? And I get people wanting to do it, but the concern I always have is that we sound a little bit ignorant Mm-hmm. especially with something like chocolate or produce when we say it's cruelty free when other people in other social justice movements rightly know yes. what's happening in those other industries so. yeah I just always think it's funny because it's like not just vegans that are eating quinoa and eating avocados it's oh, like right? it's like everyone eats these foods totally yeah that's yeah. always the thing right we and yeah. the, I, the one that I love is the soybeans mm. and you're like uh, do you know those are majority fed to animals? <laughs> not just not all the vegans and vegetarians out there eating all that soy. No, no I know. Like, yeah, that we get blamed on all this stuff is just so ridiculous. We do, yeah. It just seems like people trying to like poke holes in veganism and kind of like Always. discount the whole movement. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, you worked in like environmental groups too, and with like social justice and farm workers rights and everything like I feel like other organizations that focus on environmentalism they're not promoting veganism at all so there is kind of like like food empowerment project is kind of one of those unique organizations that's talking like has tied in every issue um yeah I'm just wondering your thoughts about that yeah I mean I think that that's that's always, this sounds so arrogant, but that's mm-hmm. kind of like why I wish that more people knew about our work mm. is because that once you start to connect the issues, then you see some consistency there and inconsistencies in other organizations. And I'm not specifically talking about animal. I'm thinking about you talking yeah. about the environment Yeah, that, um, you know, that these environmental groups mm-hmm. because of their supporters, because of the fears, because of what I don't know, don't want to make that stuff about talking about veganism. And some of that's because people want, it's much easier for people at a certain 
um, income level mm-hmm. to go out and buy that hybrid than right. for them to want to change their eating habits. That's, you know, some people have lived their life trying to buy their way out of problems. Yeah. And that's one way they see to do it. And, you know, changing your eating habits for a lot of people isn't easy. Yeah. Um, I'd say that runs the spectrum between everybody, people who don't, can't afford fresh fruits and fresh vegetables to people who Mm -hmm. just want convenience all the time. Um, so I think that, you know, it's good for those organizations though, also to see groups like food empowerment project who are Mm -hmm. talking about some of the similar issues, but willing to speak out against say the dairy industry for pollution that they're causing and things like that. Yeah, that's, that's super important. And I think um, maybe I had come across the term before. I'm pretty sure I have, but I know maybe for a lot of people, um, the term environmental racism was something they first learned about, like from Cowspiracy, because they had that section about, um, I think it was like pig farms in a certain area in the States. Yeah, yeah. Environmental racism, the areas that we primarily talk about are North mm-hmm. Carolina, um, which is Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities living and then in the pig farms, which I've investigated there. Oh, okay. um, and then the dairy farms, which I've also investigated here in California, where it's predominantly the Latinx communities that are impacted mm. with some of the highest rates of asthma in the country. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, environmental racism. I mean, and the mm. thing is, it takes all different forms. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it's good. We're probably one of the only groups that talks about all of them, mm-hmm. that it is the refineries. That it, and that's because I worked on the that with the, my previous the organization I used to work for, right. um, but also tying in the animal part. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to talk about all of it. There's so many overlapping factors. But. It's, it's like, I try to yeah. see like all these connections as, as yeah. opportunities more than overwhelming. Yes. Like opportunities we have to constantly yes. try to make the world a better place. Yeah, exactly. And like for any new vegans out there that maybe this is like new information for you and you're feeling like overwhelmed with like, you know, now you have to like start thinking about all these other things, just take it one step at a time. And there's that saying, like, when you know better, you can do better. So like, never feel bad about like not knowing about something. And then when you learn about it, then you can change. (laughs) And new vegans, you're doing a great, great thing. If you're newly vegan, thank you so much for doing that. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. huge. And, you know, I get a lot asked a lot by young students, like, what should I give up first if I'm going to go vegan? And I'm like, whatever is the easiest for you. You know, whatever it's going to take for you to be successful, that's what you need to mm-hmm. do. Um, because that's what we want. We want you to, to see that you can do this, see the difference that you're making. And um, being able to wake up in the morning and look at yourself and know you're not responsible for taking anybody's life. And then, you know, just do what you can. I think that's mm-hmm. the best that we can all do. Because there's always, always more that we can do. Yeah, exactly. Um, another kind of thing I hear from like non-vegans mostly, is that, you know, veganism is only for privileged people and it's um, like a very expensive way to live. So I'm kind of wondering um, your thoughts around that. Yeah, I mean, there's two parts of me on that. One is, why are they so concerned? Mm -hmm. Because if they're using it as a way to dismiss veganism, I don't don't fall for that, you know? And it's funny because the work we... I used to get that comment before Food Empowerment Project, but since doing Food Empowerment Project, I never hear that from people anymore. Um, So I guess because they, you know, they probably know something about the organization that actually that's what we're working on. But I do think it it is correct in the sense that Mm -hmm. people who lack access to healthy foods, um, that it's not easy to go vegan. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the things I, I hope people will stop saying because it, again, we don't sound well informed. Um, when we say things like that, because if you live in a community that lacks access to healthy foods, that is, you know, bound by food apartheid, you, it is, if we're going to expect somebody to go vegan, we're expecting them to be very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And then are they going to stick with it if they're that unhealthy? Um, but yeah, fruits and vegetables in these communities are going to be way more expensive mm-hmm. um, because they don't have a lot of them, at least the communities we're working in don't have a grocery store. Mm-hmm. So they're having to buy, if there is any produce at the liquor stores and the gas stations and the convenience stores, then those are higher. Those cost a lot more. So um, it can be that way. Um, And we're not even talking about like 
like vegan ice cream or vegan sausages. We're literally talking about fruits and vegetables. So, and all those other things aren't even available Mm -hmm. in these areas, you know, and one of the things that, that isn't available in many of these communities is um, plant-based milks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something that we talk about a lot because we, we use the term called lactose normal Mm -hmm. instead of lactose intolerance to talk about people who don't consume, who can't consume or um, milk from another species. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, and and also recognizing the legacy of colonization that, you know, for my ancestors who were indigenous to the Americas, Mm -hmm. you know, there were no cows here, you know, Columbus brought the cows over. So dairy for our, why many of our people don't consume or can't consume, um, uh, animal-based milks is because of that fact. It's not inherent to who we are and who our being is. So we call us lactose normal. Um, and a lot of other um, black and brown people as well mm-hmm. who can't consume what I consider a colonized food. Um, not saying that we were vegans, but I'm just saying that that is literally a product of colonization. So those types of foods are also not available in many of these communities. Mm-hmm. But what is available is cow's milk, bacon, yeah. and eggs. Yeah, that's so true. I know as much as I want to tell everyone to like go vegan and it's so easy to go vegan, there are certain um, circumstances. Like my mom is Métis. She grew up in Northern Alberta and some of her elder friends are from like really far North in Canada. Mm-hmm. And she's talked like hear stories from them about the food access issues up there and like Mm -hmm. having fruit and veggies like trucked in or flown in is like impossible and when it is it's super expensive so I think the climate um, access to grocery stores like you're talking about and um, maybe if someone is getting their food from food banks or um, like other organizations like that where you don't even maybe you don't have a lot of choices. Although I think maybe now that's changing a little bit, but yeah, I mean, yeah. There's some community we work in where, you know, the people live in a um, hotel. Mm -hmm. So everything they eat comes out of a microwave. There's nothing else that they can eat. I mean, it just, again, it's this, this world of privilege that some of us live in. Mm -hmm. I include myself in that. I've got Mm -hmm. a car. I don't worry about my next meal. I do worry about other things related to money, but not things like that, that many people, it's a constant struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Time to cook. Cause like often we'll hear like, oh, well, veganism is cheap because you're just buying like whole grains and beans from the bulk section and then your, your veggies. But if someone's like working so much that they don't have time to cook from scratch or they don't have a kitchen, like you mentioned, it can be super difficult. Yeah. So, they, it's referred to as time poor and cash poor mm, too. Okay. Yeah. And the term food apartheid, is that like different than food desert or you prefer saying that instead of food desert? Well, we were part, so we, we kind of had gone back and forth with food apartheid and food desert in the beginning. And then uh, I attended a conference at Duke University with some interfaith, the black churches were there. And we kind of just agreed upon, we just need to use the term food Mm. apartheid because it is what's most accurate. Because otherwise the concern is that it seems like this is accidental. Mm -hmm. Whereas these are deliberate attempts to harm the health of black and brown and indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. These aren't, these aren't happening by accident. We have grocery stores preventing other grocery stores from moving into communities. Um, that's deliberate. That's deliberately. So, and, you know, just that not acknowledging that racism and discrimination play a role in all of this mm-hmm. as well. So um, that's when we, you know, made the firm decision just to stick with that term. Okay. Um, yeah. I actually wanted to ask you about that. So like the work that you do around having access to healthy foods, what was the goal and impact of the Shame on Safeway campaign? Well, we are still in the middle of the Shame oh, on okay. Safeway campaign. Okay. <laughs> I, wish, I wish we had done that, but not yeah. yet. But basically in doing, you know, we did, we started doing our access work in Santa Clara County, which is where we're based. Mm-hmm. And it was basically, I, FEP was still all volunteer at the time. And I realized that where I lived in my work, I had two liquor stores across the street from each other. And Santa Clara County is known as the Silicon Valley. It's the county that Apple, Facebook, Adobe, 
Netflix, all these huge companies are based. And I was like, so do I live in an area that lacks access to healthy foods? So gathered up our volunteers and we surveyed high income and low income areas in the community. And sure enough, found that the, uh, there was a big discrepancy in access to healthy foods and the um, black, brown, um, lower income communities and um, higher end communities had better. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we were asked um, by one of the founding members of the Black Panther Party to take a look at what was happening in Vallejo, California, which is in between um, Berkeley and Sacramento, the Bay Area. Okay. And um, we found that Safeway was located in downtown, which was a black and brown community and also senior living facilities there. And they relocated a couple miles away. And when they left, they put a restrictive deed on their, I should say restrictive covenant. And in that covenant was a deed preventing any other grocery store from moving in for 15 years. Yeah. So when we started the campaign, there was no grocery store there at all. Um, Eventually a grocery outlet has moved in. Um, which is helping the community. But if you've ever been to a grocery yeah. outlet, they're not a regular grocery store. You can't go in there every week and find the same products. Okay. So um, so then we decided to take a look, have they done this elsewhere? And sure enough, we found that they were doing it all over the country. So we started a campaign. Well, we wrote Safeway and mm-hmm. we're like, hey, you know, can you stop doing this? And they're like, what? Sometimes we have to. And we're like, nope, you know, oh. what happens in the health of communities. Um, and so, yeah, we have a campaign against Safeway and um, we have a petition on our website for people to sign. And we also, um, before COVID, we were going out and leafleting and protesting in front of the grocery stores and we will be doing that again soon. Okay. So their strategy is just like, if they don't let another grocery store in, then people who do have cars can, will be forced to travel to where they move to. Yeah. And it's funny because it's like, we don't quite know. My mind tells me this. My mind tells me that more than likely they, well, we do know they moved to a, you know, a more, a higher income area. Okay. And they know that maybe these people weren't going to go travel to the lower income community to do their grocery shopping. But the people in the lower income community, community will go anywhere because uh, they need to get their food and they don't have any other options. So they, Safeway One creates a monopoly. Okay. And two, I mean, we have community members who are taking several buses, you know, and spending mm-hmm. half the day just to go and get food. Um, wow. And Safeway knows people will do it, right? Because that is, they need to eat. Mm-hmm. And others who can't and who don't, they got all their food for those 15 years from the convenience stores and the liquor stores. And those teenagers never knew what it was like to have a grocery store in their neighborhood. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't really understand sort of like the ins and outs of like why there aren't grocery stores in certain areas but yeah I think and I think that's most of us right Mm -hmm. you know if you start to at least if you're in the U.S. um, and I've seen this more and more Safeway has a certain shape of their buildings and you start to notice that "Mm, those are Safeways or Albertsons yeah wow well okay if people like want to support that campaign or other campaigns that you're working on is that um, like what's the best way they can do that? They can come to our website at foodispower.org and okay. we have volunteer tab. If you want to volunteer, if you're specifically mm-hmm. interested in the Safeway campaign, do fill out the form and let us know you're interested in the Safeway campaign and Safeway goes by other names around mm-hmm. the country. Um, but which we have the details on our website as well. But okay. um, yeah, we always, we definitely want people to get involved. I mean, mm-hmm. volunteers, I mean, if you remember, we started in 2007, we didn't hire our first full-time employee until 2016. Okay. All of that work was done by volunteers. Wow. So yeah, we, really we love volunteers <laughs> and really help build the organization. Okay, great. Um, I'm wondering other campaigns, um that you've like worked on recently and kind of like the best way you feel or that you've experienced to help um, inspire others to make like ethical food choices well I mean one of the campaigns we're involved in right now is the the boycott against Amy's oh um because of the treatment of the workers so um Amy's kitchen um they make a lot of frozen foods burritos bowls, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, They're located in Sonoma County, which is where we used to be based for about nine years. 
And over the time there, I'd always heard about how the workers weren't treated great. But last year is when they started to try to organize and try to get changes hmm. made because of poor working conditions, safety issues. Um, a lot of the, they're expected to wrap in, in just impossible number of burritos a minute. Um, and a lot of the women there suffer from like shoulder problems, wrist problems, swollen hands at the end of the day. Um, they also have inadequate health care. They also don't make very much money. And living wage in 2017 in Sonoma County was about, say, like $21, maybe $21.73 or something like that. And a lot of these, there's a worker there, a few of them who've worked there 20 years who basically just make $20 an hour right now. Whoa. Um, and it's very, it's a very expensive community to live in. And so, um, yeah, we've been supporting, you know, we asked them, what can we do? And the response was don't buy Amy's products. Mm. And so we are supporting their boycott. We are seeing, um, just got a call from Mandela Grocery, which is a worker-owned cooperative in Oakland here that has pulled Amy's products from their shelves in solidarity with the workers at Amy's. And it's been a tough thing, right? Because vegans, um, you know, myself included, feel very have felt very loyal to Amy's. I mean, they Mm -hmm. opened a drive-through in my town, and I went on the first day. You know, like I loved Amy's, and I'm just so heartbroken and disappointed in them that they wouldn't want to change immediately once they found out one of their workers was suffering much less to the extent of how many are so um, who actually are brave enough to speak out about it much less the ones who aren't don't feel like they can do that so um and I, I find it incredibly inspiring one of the reasons is because we have built such a great relationship with the unions who are working on this you know so we have forged a really we already had a really great relationship we're part of the um, north bay jobs with justice mm-hmm. which is a coalition of unions and we've been a part of that for several years now to where you know we got what's called the north bay labor council to support our campaign against safeway you know so we've been able yeah. to find ways to collaborate together um on all of these issues that that mm-hmm. you know that that intertwine so I, I find that really inspiring. And they've been beyond excited to be like, we've never worked with vegans before. This is so incredible. And they're so excited to work with us, just like we are to work with them. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I'm wondering, like, for farm workers, um, are there unions that help protect their, um, like, wages or, like, how long they work? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, we work with uh, one um, organization, but they, well, we work with, we work with a lot of different individuals. We work okay. with a lawyer who works with the United Farm Workers, um, which has some contracts with workers mm-hmm. of the grocery stores and retailers that have um, agreed to sign on to their fair food campaign. And it is, it is overseen by the workers themselves, which is incredibly inspiring. So, yeah, I mean, that's that was the hard thing with deciding to do farm worker stuff. Because like, okay, go vegan, don't eat animal products. Okay, farm worker stuff. Oh, okay, no, you still got to eat produce. Yeah. So we really just try to honor the boycotts called by the farm workers as okay. a way to support them in solidarity. Okay. Yeah, it's good to know. And um, right after I finished university for nutrition I moved back to Vancouver Island which is where I grew up and I leased a couple acres of land and started my own like little vegetable farm and holy that is such hard work like after that I was like I will never take the fruits and veggies in my grocery store for granted again like (laughs) like those people that work on farms that's incredibly difficult work it is. And thank you for recognizing that. I think a yeah. lot of times people are like, oh, I could never do that as if the farm workers are somehow superhuman. Yeah. The reality is, is that they, they, they want to have a better life mm-hmm. and they're going to work to the bone, you know, and they, yeah, the abuse that they receive is just unimaginable for something that we all, yeah. we all benefit from. Yeah. Totally. Um, So before we get to the last question, I just kind of want to go back to the beginning when you were talking about the other websites you made. So about vegan Mexican food, vegan Filipino food. Um, I really love that because I think other cultures around the world do eat a lot of plants. 
And it just is maybe like a few kind of like adjustments or changes here and there. Like I live in Mexico. And so like with rice, like sometimes it's cooked in chicken stock. So it's just a matter of like changing that out. And then with beans, like not having it with um, manteca. So it's like, yeah, it's inherently very plant-based, but um, yeah, yeah, just learning to still kind of like honor and, celebrate your culture your through food but with these little changes I love that yeah thank you yeah it's it's very exciting and it's really great to see um, how popular it is um, when you look at the statistics on our website of the Spanish of the yeah. Spanish page of vegan Mexican food oh nice so you think it is like being embraced and we, we did um, yeah. we did ads in um, two Latinx papers last year promoting vegan Mexican food uh-huh. website in English and in Spanish and our website uh, I don't really know had over three hundred percent more hits than normal okay That's so great. yeah yeah it was very amazing exciting. That's wonderful and yeah I, I think I've definitely checked out some of the recipes. Um, that I listed there they look really good (laughs) yeah my family's some of my families are in there and uh, my favorite well my favorite dish growing up was a fideo so and my husband who is not Latinx um, has done a great job of being able to cook that dish so you try it (laughs) what is it it's called it's it's basically noodles oh okay Um, yeah it's like a I call it noodles, but you kind of cut them up. I, I, I don't cook. That's okay. <laughs> I started an organization called yeah. Food Empowerment Project. I barely even like food and I don't even cook. <laughs> I just see tool, food as a tool for social yes. change. Yes. Oh, <laughs> totally. That's so funny. <laughs> um, well, okay. I'll have to check that one out then. I yes. love noodles. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts or tips or anything you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah. So I think that, you know, especially people who are maybe interested in starting their own something Mm -hmm. is to, you know, me looking back is, you know, it's been hard that Food Empowerment Project is much smaller than organizations that are younger than us. Mm -hmm. But it does mean a lot to me to know that I don't feel like we've had to compromise our ethics. And I think that it may be a struggle to not do that sometimes. But I think it's really important to always stay true to who you are as much as you can, Mm -hmm. Um, because it's it's uh, you want to be able to create something that has the ability. If people are attracted to the organization for how it started and you start selling off parts of that, Mm. you've lost something. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to um, just start out slow if you have to. I mean, we're proof of that um but sometimes you have to and you know that's I think that's got to be okay but Uh, and also do it start whatever it is that you want to start I mean if I can do it and I don't even like numbers you know (laughs) you 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 bring people together you know we've had people with us since it was just an idea in my head so you know just find those good people and and you know do it as a team oh I love that and your story is just super empowering and inspiring and I can't wait for everyone to listen um having yeah just thanks for doing everything that you're doing to bring these issues to light and get some attention on them I think it's really important well thank you thanks for making sure our word gets out there and also thank you for starting a podcast thank you it's really important to get your voice out there yeah for sure Well, thank you again. And yeah, we will put all the information about your website and social media in the show notes um, so people can reach you. Great. Thank you so much. And everybody, feel free to reach out. Great.